good morning, and we I welcome you this morning. We're going to be looking at the first couple of verses of First Peter this morning, just getting into the book last week. For those of you who are here, we did an introduction. I guess there's none left. But at any rate, <laughs> at any rate, uh, uh, some of the some of the material I'm going to be covering in verse one at the very beginning kind of duplicates what we uh, some of what we said last week, uh, but that's just to get us into the groove of things, so we'll be doing that. I was asked, though, I do have one little item of business I was asked to do. I guess the, uh, the group that gathers at uh, 8.45 or whatever time it is that they gather to, to pray wanted us to pass around this, and if you have any prayer requests, just write it on here and uh, uh, so that they can have them on Sunday mornings to pray. So uh, if you would be so kind as to do that, it would be appreciated. And I guess just leave it with with him, and we'll get it back to him at that with Michael there at the end, and we'll get it back to him at the uh, uh, back to him. So, anyway, we asked to do that. This uh, this week, uh, my daughter Dina, who lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, came and spent a few a few days with us, and she she told me she listens to my my class on the on the. Uh, on the page and she says the only thing I got to tell you is every time you turn a page I can hear it (laughs) so I don't know if I can soften the page turning or not but uh, at any rate for those who hear it on tape sorry about that (laughs) anyway so this uh, this morning we're going to be looking at first Peter and just kind of to set the stage first Peter was written around probably 63 AD it was certainly written before 64 AD 64 4 AD makes, marks a major event in the Roman Empire. Nero did his reconstruction um, efforts in Rome, and his idea of uh, eminent domain was to burn the city down. Uh, it went farther than he intended. He burned out the people he planned to blame, the Jews, which resulted in the fire stopping at the neighborhood where the Christians lived, and so he blamed them. And so it's after 64 AD that official imperial Roman persecution began. That hasn't happened in 1 Peter. 2 Peter is a different story. But in 1 Peter, that hasn't happened yet. So as he's going to talk about suffering as we move through the book, not so much in verses 1 and 2, but as we move through the book, uh, that persecution, that suffering comes from the neighborhoods in which they lived and the people around them probably primarily from the Jewish quarter, also from the Gentile quarter, because as Acts says, they were men who turned the world upside down. So uh, those 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 are the those are the backdrops to where we are. So it's about 63 AD, could be 62, somewhere in that general vicinity. It's likely after if it was written from Rome, which I tend to think it probably was. Um, can't prove that, but it tends to tend to think the book was written from Rome. If it was written from Rome, certainly he would have mentioned if Paul was there and Paul was released from his first imprisonment in 62 AD. So it's somewhere between Paul's release in 62 AD and prior to the burning of Rome in 64 AD. That puts you in 63 AD. So we'll say 63 AD. That's kind of the kind of the the idea here. So uh, I like to for those of you are new with me and with this class. I like to run the class this way, just so you know. I like to give a little bit of an introduction, like I just did. Uh, take a pause to ask for any prayer requests and and uh, and offer the opportunity to do that. I generally like to ask one of the men in the group to do the opening prayer, although I will do it today until I kind of get to know some of you, and because uh, I know some people don't like to be called upon, so uh, we will we will kind of try to do it that way, and then we get into the text. That's what we like to do. Also. I don't mind if you if you if a if a question comes up that's related to the text. Please don't go three chapters beyond where I am. We'll get there. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, if it's related to the text or if you have a comment, uh, please. We want to be interactive. We want to be able to allow that. You can't do that in a morning service, but you can do it here. So, uh, and at the end, at the end, we also ask for that. And if something does come up, I I didn't do. I was going to put it on here, but I'm going to put my 
my email address and my cell phone. You can always text me or you can write me a note, and I, I guarantee within a couple of days I will answer you. I may have to research your question, but nevertheless, I'm more than happy to do that. And uh, uh, in fact, I kind of enjoy it. Uh, but at any rate, uh, 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 that's that's kind of. I guess the rules. I don't know. Uh, anyway, the order of things, maybe. Uh, anyhow. So, at any rate, uh, this morning, that's what we're going to do. So, do we have any any prayer requests this morning? I know until everybody kind of gets to know each other in the new setting, that probably isn't so. So, if not, we will. I'll go ahead and ask. We have a my. Their cousin um, had an emergency appendectomy. She's 13? 13, so we just pray for Sarah and her family. Sarah? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, we'll, we'll pray. Father God, as this, this morning as we come to your text, as we come to your word, uh, we just ask that your spirit would take that word and, and, and instruct us, lead us, guide us, open our eyes to see the truth that you have there for us. That, that you would use it to draw us nearer to yourself and that you would use it to correct us if any correction needs to be made and to encourage us for the week ahead that we might be better servants for you. I just ask Lord, that we would be true to the text and that we would bless you and give you all the glory for, for, uh, for this time together, that you would be honored, that you would be uplifted, that your name would be raised, and we would be drawn closer, uh, and we would, we would be stronger in our service. And we would thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're going to begin. So as we look at this text this good morning, morning. uh, as we look at this text this morning, uh, I I have a feeling I looked at uh, the the online uh, 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 bulletin for today, and I have a feeling that Pastor Steve is probably going to cover some of the same territory since uh, uh, his sermon is about the sovereignty of God. This text begins with election, the sovereignty of God. So, at any rate, we may be covering some of the same territory. But I get to do it first, so okay. Uh, anyway, anyway, so here he says, it, it begins by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles from the, dispers- the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of God, uh, blood, May grace and peace be multiplied unto you, or, or to you, excuse me. Learned it in a different verse, in a different version. Anyway, as we come to the, as we come to this text, the first thing, the first thing that happens is Peter identifies himself to tell who is writing it. He says, Peter, and, and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is the most used name in, in the New Testament. It, it occurs 210 times, as compared to Paul, who, compare, who, who is used 162 times, and all the rest of the apostles combined are only used 142 times. So, Peter is a well-known name. They would know this name, and, and uh, that's, that's, that's how he begins. He says, he says Peter. Yeah, that's, he just begins that way, simply, Peter, and they would know exactly who that was. He was born in Bithynia, or, or, uh, yeah, Bithynia uh, John 1.14. He lived most of his life in Capernaum. He and his wife, he was married. There's no, rec- there's no record that he had any children, so we don't know about that. Uh, but we do know that he was married. Uh, he was a fisherman by trade. Uh, he, worked with in, he was in business with his brother Andrew and his father John, uh, Jonas, who, or John, uh, Matthew 16.17 uh, and John, and John 1.14. Uh, Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus. Uh, he was the one who brought Peter to Jesus. And, and, and uh, when he did, Jesus immediately gave him a nickname. Uh, in, the, in the text of Scripture, in John 1.14, it says the name he gave him was Cephas, which is the Aramaic name, uh, which in Greek is Peter. Uh, and it, in both languages means rock. Um, during his time with Jesus, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter isn't so much a rock. Uh, he may be more like sand. I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, uh, once uh, 
once the resurrection has taken place, Peter becomes that rock. And, uh, and we see that throughout the rest of Scripture. So, um, <clears throat> but he uses the name Peter. Uh, it expresses authority and influence uh, by using the name that Jesus gave him, uh, and he's the only one in Scripture with that name. We don't find that name anywhere else in the, in the pages of Scripture. Uh, and then he goes, he says, he is an, an apostle. He places, now I, I think this is important, he doesn't, use, uh, he doesn't use the definitive article here. He doesn't say, the apostle. In other words, Peter isn't claiming to be Pope. There's no concept of that in Scripture. Uh, there is no, he is not the apostle of the apostles. He's Peter, an apostle. He puts himself on the same level with all the apostles. He just says, I'm one of the group. I'm one of the guys. I'm one of the apostles. That's, that's how he puts it. In another place, we will get to this later, in First uh, Peter uh, 5.1, when he speaks to the elders in the church there, he says, as your fellow elder... He puts himself, again, as part of the group. I think this demonstrates that at this point in his life, well, his pre-resurrection, before, before Christ's resurrection, uh, he seemed to be somewhat arrogant. Um, we see here the humility of the man. He understood uh, that within Christianity, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. There are no superstars. Uh, everybody has a job. Everybody has a position. Everybody has a place. Everybody has a gift to be used. And the Holy Spirit is the one who puts them there. The fact that he puts you there as an apostle or he puts you there as an elder means that's what he puts you there to be. It doesn't mean you're better or above. And I think Peter demonstrates that here. He is an apostle and he is one of the fellow elders. Simply simply is what he, what he has to say there. And this is interesting because whenever Scripture lists the apostles, and I've, I've put them down there, it's Matthew 10, uh, Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1, uh, Peter's always listed first. He's always given the prominence among them, but he doesn't assume that. And I, I think that's a, a significant mark in the man's character. Uh, he was also one of the inner circle of Jesus along with John and James. He, he accompanied Jesus to the transfiguration, to Gethsemane. Uh, he first he preached the first sermon of the church. He stood against Jewish authorities. He's the one that passed discipline on sinning church members. Um, uh, um, and he confront. He's the one who confronted Simon the magician, uh, and he uh, he also was the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And in the council at Jerusalem, he was the he he stood up and defended Gentile sal- salvation by grace alone and Christ alone. So uh, all of those things mark the apostle Peter as an apostle, which basically meant a. A sent one, a representative of you. Generally, it was used to to speak of a representative of of a an authority, a, a king, a majesty, or something like. That. In that day, it would be a it would be a, a king or some potentate or something like that. It would be is is the kind of idea. And they're sent. They they're sent carrying the authority of the one sending them. So as an apostle, he is, say, he is basically saying, and, and he goes on to say, of Jesus Christ. And, and saying that, he's saying, I represent Jesus, and I have all the divine authority to do so, and to speak on his behalf. In other words, he's, in claiming, he's claiming inspiration in his words, uh, which is, of course, true. That's, that's, that's all a part of this. This is who he was. This is, this is the man they're looking at. And then he goes on and he says, he, he, he tells us who the, who the recipients are. He says, he says, to those who are elect exiles from the dispersion. So the first thing he talks about is he calls them elect. This is the doctrine of election. Right up front in the book. That's where he begins with, with, with that. These are people who are elect or in the, NS, uh, or the NASB or the uh, uh, Legacy Bible. They use the word chosen. It's the same word. It's not a different word. It's ek lego. Uh, ek means from. And lego doesn't mean that little brick that your grandchildren leave on the floor and you step on and scream. It's, it means... Uh, it, it's not that. It's together or to pick out. 
Uh, It basically describes God's sovereign act of choosing some individuals for salvation. And understand that. That's what God did. Out of Adam's fallen race, he chose to save some. He chose. Not you. Not anybody else. God chose. That's, that's, the, that's the emphasis here. This word, elect, is used 22 times in the New Testament. It always refers to a person chosen by God from a group who are not chosen and chosen for inclusion among God's people as recipients of the great privilege of, of great privilege and blessing. Matthew 20, uh, 16, uh, 24, 31, Romans 8, 3, uh, and also in 1 Peter 2, 4, 10. Look over with, with me, if you will, at, two, at uh, 2, 4 through 10. He says there, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Chosen and precious, same word. Elect, it could be, could be translated. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the script, for it, sta- for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the uh, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they are des- are destined to do uh, to do. But you are chosen, elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's election. That's what he's talking about here. This is the point. God chose to save, and that's who he is addressing in this text. He's addressing those people whom God chose to save. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Paul is a, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth with, uh, with accords with, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us or elected us, as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his gracious, uh, his glorious grace. Uh, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, uh, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all, all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, uh, as a plan for the f- fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And I just want to point out, if you look at that verse in, 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 in Ephesians, you'll notice that in verse, in verse 4, he tells us whom did it, and it's God. So that's, that's the answer there. He says, and for he chose us, and he's speaking of God there. And then he goes on in verse, in, in, in verse 5 and 6, and he tells us why he did it. Uh, he predestined us for adoption to himself, his sons, according to Jesus Christ, according to his own purpose. God purposed to do so. And he goes on to tell us, he tells us, uh, he tells us uh, when he did it. Uh, 
he did it. He did it in eternity past. And he goes on. He goes on in verse uh, in verse uh, seven. He tells us the means by which he did it. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our trespasses. And in verse ten, he he goes on to tell us to to, to go on to tell us what the results are. Uh, that in the fullness of time to unite all things together in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, all to the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's ultimately ultimately the whole backdrop behind the doctrine of election. And then, it, then it's kind of interesting. This is a, I kind of skipped ahead here a little bit. If, if we go to the last book, if we go to the very last book, and we go to the book of Revelation, there's a couple of interesting things there because there it talks about the book of life. And in the book of life, and it tells us some things about the book of life. In chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwelled on, uh, and all, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name is not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, the book of life, which had your name in it, was written in that book before you ever were. In fact, before creation ever was. God planned it that way. Uh, uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 8. Seventeen. Excuse me. Seventeen, verse eight. I can't read my own writing. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to raise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it it was and is not and is to come. In other words, once again, he makes makes a point here. These are the non-elect are not written in the book of life. And that book of life was written when? The found it before the foundations of the world. Uh, election took place before you ever were. Election took place before Genesis 1. That, that's, that's, that's the idea here that he's, he's wanting to say. Uh, written from the foundations of the world. And then he talks about, he says, he makes the comment, he goes on to say, he describes these, these whom, these elect, these specific elect to whom he is writing the book to, and he calls them exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and incidentally, Asia is a Roman providence, not a continent in this case, and, and Bithynia, and Bithynia. And he says, the EVS says, exiles of the dispersion. The NASB says, whose reside as aliens scattered. The uh, LVS says, who reside as uh, exiles scattered. Uh, So they use this term kind of interchangeably, exiles and aliens. The the concept is, the dispersion, uh, these people who were dispersed and scattered across the Roman Empire is is really what he's talking about. It's translated from the word dispersia, which was a technical term initially for the Jews. Jews who were who were uh, who were spread throughout the world during the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. We talked about this last week. Those those foreign rulers, when they conquered a land, took the people of that land and they spread them across their empire. They took them out of their homeland and they put them somewhere else. And and they they mixed them up and they took other people and put them in their homeland. This broke up the continuity of governments and people and and even uh, families and interactions that way. And it made them easier to control. It was it's a control issue. And so they did this kind of thing. That's the kind of thing they did. And so that's the technical term uh, that had to do with the Jews. Uh, it's used in John uh, 7, 30, uh, 31 and it's used in James 1. Uh, and there it has the and, and in those instances it says the dispersion. In other words, that's the technical term referring to the Jews. The the, the article is not here. He's using it here to mean to have a little different influence. He's wanting the influence to be on the fact that as Christians, they are spread throughout the world. That's the idea here. They're a dispersed group. That's what we were told to do. Go in the world, go to, the, you know, go to all, all corners of the world. That's the idea here. Uh, and it would be, it would then speak to both Jewish and Gentile 
Christians, as we talked about this book, was uh, there's been debate over whether it was written to Jews or it was written to Gentiles. Well, if you look at the places it was written to, it was written to both, because that's who lived there. Uh, so that's, 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 that's the idea. They're, they're scattered. They're scattered over the earth. And incidentally, they're scattered. They are aliens and exiles because they are people who live in a land. They may have even been born there. That's not their home. Because our home is in heaven. Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, Hebrews 11, uh, 13, uh, chapter, uh, verses 13 through 16. Uh, Hebrews 13, 14. All of those describe this is not our home. This is not our final place. We are, we are resident aliens. That's who you are. This is not home. This is not home. And that's, that's the idea here. They're living in a place, even if they were born there, that's not their homeland. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying to them. This is who he's writing to. He's writing to people that are in a place that isn't home. They're not home yet. That's, that's the point. There's a, there's a, uh, I heard this a long time ago, the story of, of uh, some missionaries who had spent their entire life on the mission field. Uh, and they, uh, they're, uh, they're coming home. They're coming back home. And they're getting off the train. This is an old story. <laughs> they're getting off the train. And at the time they were getting off the train, there was some dignitary that was also getting off the train. And there's a band there to meet them, and there's all this celebration going on, uh, the dignitary. And there was no one there to meet the missionaries. And uh, uh, the husband said to the wife, I'm going to put it on, on him. I don't remember which one said it to who. But anyway, the husband said to the wife, Look at that. Look at all that celebration. We spent 25 years serving God on the field, and there's no one here to even say hello. And she looked at him and said, you're not home yet. That's the point. You're not home yet. You're not home yet. And it's addressed to Pontius, to Galatia, to Cappadocia, to Asia, and to Bithynia. And incidentally, those are five districts uh, that, that today are within the borders of modern Turkey. They're more up along the northern border of, uh, of mar- modern Turkey. They're kind of spread out through that, that area. In 64 AD, uh, uh, Pontius and Bithynia were made into one prov- providence under the Roman rule of things. Uh, so it's four, five districts, four providences. But in the, day, in the day that Peter was writing, they would have been individually listed this way. This way, uh, it's interesting to know just to understand the spread of the gospel in these areas because some of them we don't know a lot about. Uh, Paul uh, had ministered in Galatia and Asia. Um, they were predominantly Gentile areas. Acts fourteen one through thirteen sixteen one through five eighteen twenty three and then in nineteen ten Pontius and Cappadocia and also Asia. If you go to Acts chapter two verse nine, you will find out people from those lands were at Pentecost. They were there on the day Peter preached that sermon. Some of them heard it. Conclusion is some of them got saved and took the gospel back home. So that's how the gospel got there. Paul was told he could not go into Bithynia. Well, if Bithynia was made a part of Cappadocia, then probably that's how the gospel got to Bithynia. We don't know that, but it makes sense. It just kind of that seems to be the flow that that's probably how it got there. So it covers a wide area. And uh, it's all within Roman districts, and, and this is probably how the, the gospel spread there. So he's, he's writing to those Christian believers who are resident aliens in these lands, not home yet, who have been chosen or elected by God for salvation. That's, that's who the address is to. And then he's going to go on, and he's going to talk about the work of the Trinity in election. 
now this isn't the full boat of things, but he, but for Peter's uh, for Peter's uh, for Peter's uh, uh, idea here, these are three acts of the triune God, and he puts it Father, Spirit, and Son. And I think there's it's, it doesn't have anything to do with any kind of an order other than than the flow he wants to express and how it relates to election uh, uh, and how he's how he's relating to election. And he, he first of all he's going to say that the Father has foreknowledge, the Spirit sanctifies, and Christ expects obedience from the cleansing of, sprink- of the sprinkling of blood. So those are the those are the three points that. Uh, that he's going to bring out here. And the first, the first thing he says is he says this. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I've heard, he, he says, the elect, the exiles, the aliens are so according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Foreknowledge is directly related to election. It's in foreknowledge that God elected is, is the idea here. Uh, foreknowledge is not that God just knows a fact or that he sees the future. Uh, in his systematic theology, uh, uh, a guy by the name of Thiessen, he, he tried to explain foreknowledge, and he did a terrible job. Uh, he basically said, well, God looked down the pages of history and saw the choices you were going to make and ordained them. That's not foreknowledge. That's, that's not it. Uh, that's not, not at all the, the idea here. God doesn't, just because he knows what you're going to do, Decide that's what you're going to do. God, God knew this. This is this is outside of that. It's based on God. It's based on God's knowledge who He chooses, but it's not based on what you do. It's based on what He does. That's that's the idea here. You understand? If you take this idea that God just knows what's going to happen, so He said, okay. He says, well, you're going to do it on this date, so I already know that, so okay, that's the way it's going to happen. No, that's not the way it works. In fact, if you say that, there's, there's three things you're, you're, you're saying here. You're saying, first of all, that you're the sovereign in salvation. You decided you would get saved. That's what you're saying. You're saying, you know, I had a part in my salvation. The act of me accepting Jesus Christ was a work that got me saved. It's not. That's 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 not it. That's simply not it. Uh, John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's what Jesus said. You didn't choose him; he chose you. Uh, let's get the ch- let's get the choosing in the right order. Uh, secondly, it means that you can take credit for your salvation. Now that may be the same thing, but it's a little slightly different bent because it means that you can take the glory that belongs to God and put it on you. Hey, look how great I am! Look at the glory I share glory with God and salvation. You don't want to go there. Years and years ago, when we first bought our house, I learned a lesson about uh, claiming something that God did. <laughs> um, we'd had a little bit of a problem with. Uh, with uh, because I was in business for myself at the time, and the mortgage company or the loan company or whoever they, whatever they are, they uh, they messed up all the paperwork, you know, and they didn't they didn't file all the stuff they needed to file. They said, "Oh, we have everything." Well, they rejected the rejected loan, but we were already living in the house and renting it from the builder because it was finished. And so I went over and I talked with them, and, and they said, "Well, we've had trouble with this mortgage company. We've had a lot of problems with them, so we changed mortgage companies. Uh, so go see." these guys. So I went and I saw them and I brought, brought all my paperwork and they said, why didn't you present this before? And I said, because they didn't tell me I needed it and I didn't know anything about it. You know, what do I know about buying a house? So they, uh, she said, well, if you brought all this stuff, it would have been no problem. You know, so the house went through. Problem was the house went up $1,500. <laughs> this is 1974, $1,500 was a lot of money. Uh, and it was like, well, wait a minute. It's not my fault. So I went over and I talked with the, I prayed like crazy before I went over. And I, then I went over and I talked with a guy. And the guy says, yeah, you're right. We're going to put it back at the other price. So I went home and said, I talked him into putting the price back to where it belonged. I paid the fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> you don't. You don't. God doesn't share His glory. At two, Ephesians two eight and nine. I'm sure you all know that passage. You know, God doesn't share His glory. Thirdly, it would say that fallen man. 
can seek God. Scripture denies that. Man doesn't seek after God. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. We don't seek after God. God seeks after the elect that He knew before, that He foreknew before the foundations of the world. Foreknowledge or prognosis is used in 120, where it's the same word, it's translated foreknown there, uh, but it's the same word. And, and, and there it's before the foundations of the world, the plan to save was established. Look at 420, or excuse me, 120. He was foreknown, and speaking of Jesus here, same word, same word is used of him. He, uh, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what was made manifest in these last days for your sake, that through him, uh, that through him all believers in God who raised him from the dead and give him glory so that the faith and hope are in God, so that your faith is in hope, uh, your faith and hope is in God. The idea here is he's saying that God foreknew the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. It was already put into place the same way as he knew who he was going to save before the foundation of the world. And I don't really think you want to say, oh, they got, that Jesus decided he was going to do something to save you, and so God said, okay. That's not foreknowledge. You understand? That's not what it's saying here. It says this was a plan that was already in place because God knew exactly what he going to do. That's the concept of foreknowledge. That, that's the idea here. That's the concept. And I've got a whole bunch of uh, verses that uh, then go on about that. Foreknowledge is, is God's predetermining to have a relationship with an individual based on solely on his plan. It's to have a saving relationship in eternity past to be received at some time in the present to to redeem uh, uh, to receive his redeeming love sometime in the present. That's the idea here. It's it's a it's about God choosing, predetermining to have a relationship with you before you ever were, and before you ever knew anything about it. He predetermined to do that, and he set that in motion in eternity past that you would receive redemption because of his love. That's, 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 that's foreknowledge. And then he goes on to say, he goes on in that verse to, to, to speak of the next person in the, tri, in the Trinity. And he, and, he, and he says here, in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's, that's the next thing he says. Election took place in eternity past to, because of the foreknowledge of God. And, the sanct, and sanctification is the outworking of that election in the present. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, sanctification at its base means to be set apart, and in the case when we're talking about with God, it means to be set apart for God's purposes. That's who you are. You are set apart people for God's purposes. Uh, for the purpose, primarily, of saving you, but then for other things as well, to bring him, uh, ultimately, to bring him glory is ultimately the, the idea here. It's the out, that's the outworking of, 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 of election in the present. Uh, and it's a process. It's ongoing. It begins the moment you're saved, and it ends the moment you go home. It doesn't end while you're alive. You're always in process. Uh, you're always being changed, as Second uh, Corinthians uh, 3.18 tells us. We're being changed from glory unto glory. That's the sanctification process. God is dealing with you every day, uh, bringing new things, changing things, correcting things, making you into the person you ought to be. That's, that's the idea here. It, it carries with it the idea of separation, of consecration, of holiness. Look at chapter 2, verses, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you were not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile to abstain from passions of the flesh, 
which, which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may, so that they may speak against you as evildoers, and they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And you understand that he's talking about a process here. He's saying, this is what God has called you to be, and here is the process of getting you there. It's, it's a process. Um, it, it is to be separate from, it is to be consecrated, it is to be holy. It's not to look like non-believers so they'll be comfortable with you. There you're supposed to make them uncomfortable, incidentally. Uh, I've, I've always contended that if you can, as believers even, if you can walk into this auditorium, and hopefully in this classroom, but certainly in that auditorium, and you're not rattled once in a while, you're either dead spiritually or the preaching is dead spiritually. And I guarantee the preaching is not dead spiritually. So if you're not rattled every once in a while, if you're not challenged, if you're not zinged every once in a while, if you don't come out every once in a while thinking, did Pastor Steve knew what I did last week and he shot that arrow straight at me? If that doesn't happen, there's something wrong with you. Or there's something wrong with him. And I don't think it's him. So... Anyway, this is, this is the idea. That's, that's the idea. Romans chapter 6. I forgot to mark it. Okay. I cheat, you know. I mark everything, and I forgot to mark this one. So my daughter will have to listen to me turning pages. <laughs> Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and, and have become slaves to God... <clears throat> the fruit you get leads to sanctification that it's, uh, and, it in, and it's end eternal life. That's, that's the idea of sanctification. Uh, now that you've been set free, now that you've been saved, sanctification begins. And it's an ongoing process. That's the idea he wants you to understand. It is a process of God's elective purpose in our earthly lives. That he brings us closer and closer to conformity with Jesus Christ. And then he, then he goes on to say, he, he goes on to say uh, that the idea of sanctification, and this is why he put the order the way he did. First of all, there was foreknowledge. Foreknowledge led is, is all part of the elective process, the electing. And then from having been elected and having been called into Christ and salvation, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, uh, works within us with this process of making us more like Christ, changing us from glory to glory, so that we can be obedient to Christ. That's the next thing. Uh, that's the next, the next point that he's going to make here. He says, he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So the first thing he says is for the obedience of Jesus Christ and sprinkling of his blood. Uh, <clears throat> note verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Obedience. He's calling us to obedience is the idea here. Verse 22, he's going to go on and say, he's going to go on and say, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth with a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. All of these things are part of obedience. It's being obedient and being sprinkled are the two things that go on here. And it brings, it brings to mind, and certainly Peter would have understand this, and the Jewish people among his audience would have certainly understood this, it brings to mind the confirmation of the covenant. That's what covenant, this is how covenants were confirmed. They were confirmed by being obedient to the covenant and sealing it with blood. Exodus 24, verses 3 and 8. Moses reads the book of the covenant to the people. And in verse 7, the people respond. They respond. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. That's verse 7. Then after that, Moses sprinkles blood on the people. And he says, this is the book of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. That's the picture we have here. 
That's the picture we have here. We have been brought into a covenant relationship by salvation with Jesus Christ, with God, with the whole of the Godhead. We are in a process of being sanctified, being made like Jesus. We are called to obedience, and we have been sprinkled with blood. That's initial salvation in that case. And that's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. Hebrews chapter... I forgot to mark this one, too. Uh, Hebrews chapter, chapter 9, 18. Well, we're going to start down the way. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but can only deal with food and drink and various washing regulations of the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, made, uh, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For it is not the blood, uh, the blood of goats and bulls and, and the sprinkling of defiled uh, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ash of the heifer uh, sanctified, but for purification of the flesh. Now, much more will the blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, these, uh, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred and the, and the redeemed, and that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. That's, that's the idea he's wanting us to understand here. This is what happened at salvation. Uh, it wasn't a temporary covering. It was a removal. Once and for all, Christ entered the heavenly temple and, and, and gave his own blood as a means of sacrifice. Jesus' blood takes away our sin. In, in 1, 18 and 19, he, he, it says that his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, redeemed and purchased the elect. That, that's the idea that he, he wants us to understand here. What he's telling us is the Father foreknew us. In that foreknowing, he established from eternity past, somewhere in eternity past, which is kind of redundant, eternity just goes on forever, but nevertheless, from our perspective, it was past. Uh, from eternity past, uh, God chose to save you. If you're a saved individual, God chose to do so. He made that choice, and he did it before you ever were. And, and he says, and, and from that once salvation began, He sanctified you. He's making you more and more like Christ so that ultimately you will be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's, that's the idea that's being expressed here. And He continually cleans us from sin, 1 John 1.9. Because, as, as He told Peter at the foot washing, uh, once you're washed, you're clean, but your feet get a little dirty in this life. And for believers, that is true. Uh, you all know that. You've all experienced it. And so, uh, you just need to wash your feet. You know, ultimately. Ultimately is the idea here. In fact, there's an interesting passage, passage um, that's related to the sprinkling of blood. Um, and I think it kind of relates here for the ongoing cleansing of the believer. Uh, salvation occurs one time. Jesus shed his blood for you once. You don't, you don't have to, if you, if you got into some sinful patterns, you don't have to walk down the aisle again and get re-saved it, and re-baptized or any of that kind of stuff because it isn't going to work. You already are. If you are foreknown by God and he calls you into salvation, then you're saved. That's, that's it. Uh, however, there is a cleansing process. Well, in, in Leviticus, or in the Old Testament, there are th three times blood is sprinkled. Blood is sprinkled on the priest before he makes sacrifice because he's a sinner. Blood is sprinkled on the altar 
for the sins of the people to remove the sins of the people. Those are ongoing things. In your case, that happened. Jesus didn't have to cleanse himself, but he cleansed you with his blood. That's the blood at the altar that we just read in Hebrews. But the ongo- but there's another passage, and it's found in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 14, verse 6. And in this particular passage, it speaks about the sprinkling of blood. And the sprinkling of blood was done by the priest when someone who had had leprosy came to them, and the leprosy had cleared. And they were sprinkled with blood and redeemed to the community of believers. I think that really relates to the sprinkling of blood here. Because when we sin... We are somewhat separated. Uh, we feel estranged from. Sometimes we pull away from other believers. But when we confess that sin, First John 1, 9, and he restores us to fellowship, uh, once again, the blood has covered us. That's, that's, that's the idea. So that's the picture here. That's the picture here. God called us to salvation by his foreknowledge through election. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, keeps us going, changing us, growing us. And the Son of God calls us to obedience. And through His blood, He cleanses us up when we get in a mess. That's, that's ultimately the idea here. And then he concludes by saying simply this. He says, grace and peace be multiplied. He uses the same, the same phrasing in 2 Peter 2.1. Uh, the author of Jude, Jude, when he wrote Jude, he used it in Jude 2. Uh, grace is God's unmerited favor. It encompasses mercy, love, remission of sin. Uh, grace is extended to man by God, ultimately. Uh, peace is a state of internal happiness, I guess you could say. It's an internal peace. It's an internal well-being, I think is a better way to express that. It expresses, that's expressed eternally in how we relate to our fellow man. That, that's the idea here. Uh, grace and peace are related as a cause and effect. Because God has given you grace, you can be at peace. You understand the grace puts you in right standing with God. And with right standing with God, you are at peace with Him. And if you're at peace with Him, you can be at peace in the world regardless of the circumstance. That's, that's the idea he's wanting to express here. And he's asking that, that that grace of gift and peace would be multiplied. Simply that they would have it in great abundance. And that's the opening words of Peter uh, to, this, to this group of, of Jews and Gentiles that live in northern Turkey. Basically. So, at any rate, are there any comments or questions this morning? I have a question about that. You said that Peter's name is mentioned 162 times no. in the Bible? No, 210. 210? Is that include the occasion that God referred to him as Simon? Yeah, it, it includes, it includes, it includes, it includes Simon. Okay. Peter, Simon Peter, okay. Peter, and Cephas. Okay. Includes well, all of those. You you yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a lot of, he had a lot of aliases. <laughs> A.K.A. Yeah, Simon, A.K.A. Peter, Cephas, and Simon Peter. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's, uh, let's close. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning for the time we have spent. We thank you. We thank you that our salvation is based in your work and in your work alone, God. Uh, we thank you that, that it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on who we are. It's not imp- dependent on uh, what we've accomplished. It's not a pen- dependent on what works we have done. It's dependent on you and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that, that once you have applied that blood to our lives, that we have been brought into your eternal family, that your spirit who resides within us, works within us to make you more like Jesus, to bring us into closer fellowship, to bring us into obedience, and that his blood has washed away all sin for all eternity, as far as the east is from the west. And that, Father, we can come to you. Uh, We can come to you through your grace, being at peace with you, and that you hear us, and that you move on our behalf. And we thank you, Father. We thank you for this graciousness. We thank you for this love. We thank you for this mercy. And we thank you that it is indeed multiplied to us. And we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.